answer. Um, because I've been away for a couple of weeks, <clears throat> and because there's some people here that weren't before, I thought I'd just uh, uh, recapitulate a little bit what I had started uh, in the thurs- series of Thursday evenings before I went away. <clears throat> I had uh, suggested that, that uh, you might consider possibly getting yourself a copy of this book called The Life of the Buddha by Bhikkhu Nanamoli. I don't know. Did anybody do that? Excuse me. A few people did. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, and have you started looking at it? Yeah. Bhikkhu Nanamoli. Uh, uh, Nanamoli is all the part. Uh, uh, N-A-N-A uh, M-O-L-I. Okay. It's called The Life of the Buddha. There is one other book with a similar title called A Life of the Buddha, and, and that's different. You know, the Life of the Buddha by Nanamoli. What I like about it is that it's, it's uh, the life of the Buddha largely in the Buddha's own words. Uh, because it's, uh, it's the book consists largely of uh, sutras, not entire sutras, but relevant extracts from different excerpts from different sutras that relate the life of the Buddha and a lot of the uh, most essential features of the Buddha's teaching. So, for anybody who would like to uh, get a little more deeply uh, into an un- understanding of who the Buddha was and what he taught, and especially to have an opportunity to do that in, in the language of these sutras. This, this is very good. This is, uh, this is from the Theravadan tradition. Uh, the two main uh, divisions in, in Buddhism in the modern world, referred to as the Mahayana and the Theravada, and I teach from both. I'm trained in both and teach in both. But uh, these, uh, the, the sutras here are probably the closest thing that we have today to uh, the original words of the Buddha. Although, you know, they're not, obviously not going to be exactly literally the words of the Buddha. So, anyway, it's, it's very helpful. So I had encouraged people to possibly consider getting a copy of that book. It doesn't look like this, by the way. It's, now it's a paperback and uh, much more modern. This one has been around to that. Uh, and then, using that as a basis, now I, I uh, pointed out that at the time of the Buddha, uh, the highest meditation states were not considered to be... I mean, nowadays there's this sense that, well, these things are really hard to do. And very few people can enter into these uh, very deep meditative states. But as the Buddha's teachers said to him, there's this quote, um, the teaching is such that in no long time a wise man can enter upon and dwell in it, himself realizing through direct knowledge what his own teacher knows. And uh, these were teachers who uh, taught uh, 
if, if we look at meditative states in a kind of hierarchical way of uh, the, the most profound meditative states, then uh, we see that there's a state called sanata, and that from that you can go into states called jhanas or absorptions, of which there are eight different uh, absorptions. And this specific reference that they're easy to uh, attain were teachers who taught that both the sixth and the seventh uh, of these jhanas, the sixth and seventh absorptions. So they're talking about really profound meditative states. And then I uh, went on with uh, reading some other excerpts there to uh, show you that after his own enlightenment, Buddha's first thought was that this this is really difficult uh, to understand, and that uh, it's it's only going to be frustrating for me to go and try and teach people what I discovered. But then, fortunately, he reflected and concluded that well, there's some people with a little dust in their eyes, so I'll give it a try. But then, as we go on from there. What we later discovered is that, or what the Buddha discovered, is that uh, uh, the first five people that he taught, which were easy targets, so to speak, because they were ascetics who had practiced with him for a number of years prior to his enlightenment and who had much the same background training he did. So he was able to meet with them and they achieved the highest state of enlightenment within a matter of a a few days of his talking with them. So then he moved on, and his next targets turned out to be the merchant's son, and then the merchant's father, and mother, and and other family members, and friends. And before long, we came to a point where there were 50 arhats in the world. And most of them were people who didn't have that kind of rigorous background training in spiritual disciplines. So I, I just wanted to, as my starting point in this, to make everybody understand that uh, although there is the sense that we have that awakening, enlightenment, liberation, you know, all kinds of different labels we put on it, uh, and it's, it, it's common to most of uh, many world traditions, is this awakening, that there's come to be this sense that, just like meditative states, that, oh, this is something really tough that very, very few people can, can achieve. And it was not the case then. And, uh, you know, I, what I think happened was the the Buddha paved a wide open pathway to the top of the mountain through his teachings of many different people. And so many people successfully followed that pathway that there were literally thousands and thousands of people who had achieved the highest stage of enlightenment during the life of the Buddha. He talked for about 45 years. And that at one partic- on one particular occasion, we were told, that he held a convocation of 
1,250 arahats who all happen to get together at the same time. So this gives you an idea of that. And so what I think has happened is that uh, that once well understood and easily taught and easily traversed pathway to both the highest meditative states, which give rise to awakening, and awakening itself, uh, has become has virtually disappeared in the overgrowth of the jungle of uh, ignorance and confusion. You know, and uh, uh, it's uh, it's now difficult to find our way to the same destination. But we are no less capable of doing that, nor is it any more capable of achieving than it was then. We just have to rediscover the path, and having rediscovered it, we need to to clear away all the overgrowth and move the rocks out of the way and repave it and so forth. And that's what we're working on doing. And it would uh, like to see that all of you uh, achieve uh, the highest states of awakening uh, in your lifetime, and for that matter, as soon as possible. So that's that's how we're approaching this. So in my earlier discussion and in the uh, workshop that I'm doing in October, it's going to be focused on the meditative path and how to achieve those goals more quickly and easily. Um, And uh, I feel like I am really acquiring the skills and learning how to teach that better and better all the time. And so, you know, my, my intention is to See you, see you all become very skilled meditators and have the uh, the faculties of mind, the skills necessary to uh, achieve this awakening as, as soon as possible. The other part of what I started talking about, though, was referring once again to this book, where it describes the very first teachings the Buddha gave, which are as you would expect, uh, the real foundation to uh, his 45 years of teaching, and to examine those in order so that we can uh, discover the way to this result more quickly and easily. And so the last evening that we were together, uh, we talked uh, a fair bit about the Four Noble Truths. That was the first teaching he gave he found these five other ascetics that he had been practicing with. And uh, after he convinced them to listen to him, um, uh, he he began to teach. And the first thing he taught was the Four Noble Truths. This is the basis of it. The truth uh, of the unsatisfactory nature of life, as we know it, usually stated that the truth of suffering, or the truth that all life is suffering. And actually, I, I wish he'd said it slightly differently and said, all life is suffering, but it doesn't have to be. Because that's, that's what the other truths are about, is, is the fact that it doesn't have to be. 
And he said that the reason that life is suffering is because we are afflicted with craving, with desire and aversion. And that was the second truth. The third is that uh, when you can, uh, when there is a cessation of this craving, when you can overcome craving and desire and aversion disappear, there is no more suffering. And then the fourth truth is the path that leads to this realization. Now, so we can say, okay, well, let's just look at that part here. All right, this awakening, enlightenment, liberation that he spoke of, well, the freedom from suffering, we clearly see that. That's the liberation part. That's what you're liberated from. Uh, well, at least that's, that's one main thing that you're liberated from is to be condemned to the inevitable dissatisfaction, loss, unhappiness, uh, and, and uh, suffering that is a part of life. And so this path is leading to the cessation of craving and the liberation from suffering. But what's really interesting about that is that the culmination of this path that brings about this liberation is wisdom. So you don't just get liberation from suffering, you also get liberation from ignorance or wisdom. And this wisdom is a direct understanding of the true nature of things, the way things really are. That's the wisdom part of it. And then, when you come to understand the way things really are, an immediate effect that has, in addition to freeing you from suffering and the causes of suffering, is also to give birth in your mind stream to the most powerful and the sincerest form of compassion. Because what you discover about the way things really are makes no other perspective, no other way of viewing other beings possible except one that comes from a place of compassion. So, although over and over again, whenever the Buddha was asked, what do you teach? What's your doctrine about? Uh, What are you and all these guys falling around trying to accomplish? He said, always the same answer. He says, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. But there is so much more to that. It is not only the end of suffering, which is, in terms of the individual who first sets out on the path, this is, this is what motivates them to set forth on the path. And this is what encourages them all along the way. But what they also achieve is this most profound wisdom, this deep understanding of the true nature of things. And that, in turn, gives rise to compassion. Uh, These things are not at all, any of them, unrelated, and the last goes back to the first. Part of the suffering or the dissatisfactoriness of human existence being the uh, homo sapiens, the 
knowing, thinking, cognizing, reflecting beings that we are, one of the things that we need and that we especially long for when we are confronted by all of the other in- inevitable uh, miseries that life brings is we need a sense of meaning. Life needs meaning to be truly satisfactory. And so one part of the unsatisfactoriness of life is the existential unsatisfactoriness of the uncertainty of why. Why are we going through all of this? Other than the fact that it's so hard to bring ourselves to the point of shooting ourselves or something. And why do we... Why? Why, why, why? And, and compassion provides the answer for that. With the wisdom and the compassion comes meaning and purpose. So the being that has followed this path to its natural culmination never again is left without uh, a very strong sense of the meaning and purpose of their being incarnate in a body and having the afflicted kind of minds that we do. So that's what the path is about. And, and that eightfold path actually is divided up into three parts. Virtue, meditation, and wisdom. And they work together and they support each other. Although often the way it's presented is we put the wisdom part first because first of all, there needs to be some intellectual understanding before you're willing to make the sacrifices necessary to become a virtuous person and before you have the motivation to apply yourself to the meditation part of it, which brings about that much higher wisdom. So you need this kind of basic uh, discursive, intellectual, conceptual kind of uh, uh, understanding this wisdom. It's, it's where it begins. And so, of course, understanding the Four Noble Truths is the beginning of that. The very next sutra, the very next teaching that the Buddha gave as his career is recorded for us. Now, who knows what other things he said to his five uh, uh, companions, his five disciples during this period of teaching where they achieved their arhatship because it took place over a number of days and it's not recorded. But the very next recorded teaching is one that flows naturally from the first one. And this is a sutra that is, uh, it's about there not being a self in the sense that we think there is. No self. Anatta, as it uh, is described in Pali. And this, on the one hand, this is the most important and fundamental thing that you need to grasp in order to succeed in following this path to enlightenment. On the other hand, it is the most difficult thing to grasp. And people don't come to this path, or for that matter, any spiritual path, looking 
to have someone tell them that no self, no soul. You're just a figment of your imagination. (laughs) We don't want to hear that. We come for a completely different purpose. And this was true in the time of the Buddha. The prevailing spiritual, religious, philosophical endeavors were not particularly different than they are now. And the two predominant views that uh, in one form or another there was many different schools of thought, but they all fell into uh, either the school of thought that believed that we had that we were uh, this enduring real self, this being. And the questions were things like, well, where did we come from? Did I begin when my mother gave birth to me? Or did I begin a long time ago at some particular point when I was created? Or have I always been since beginning this time? And so there were schools with those different views. And the other side of it was, what's going to happen to me, myself, I, my soul, my being, my essence, when the body dies. Um, And there were all these different schools that believed that we continued one way or another. Somehow after your body dies, that this precious self of ours persists. And one of the most common held views was that the way that this self persists is that you get reincarnated again as a new person, born to a new mother, grow up in a new family, do the same thing. Now, the other, I said there were two main divisions. The other main division had to do with the other possibility of what happens to this precious self when the body dies. And that was the materialists. And they said, well, all there is is this body and this mind and this self that is so precious to us. When the body dies and disintegrates, that's the end of that. It's all gone. It's all over with. And so there were the eternalists and the materialists. Well, not all of the eternalists were really eternalists, but that doesn't matter. This, for amongst those who held the very common belief, that you come back over and over again uh, was that you know at first this well this is great I, at least I don't have to worry about being destroyed and dying you know when my body dies I get reborn again oh thank goodness because I sure would have missed me when I was gone <laughs> but then people started thinking about that and realizing that, you know, all that means you get reborn, it means you get, you re-die. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. This cycle, you know, do I really want this? I just keep on coming back. I have to go through all the difficulties of growing up, you know, 
and all the problems and challenges and pain and suffering that come as a part of life. And then I have to die all over again. This wasn't so attractive. So the the, uh, idea developed that, well, through spiritual practice, you could somehow escape this cycle of of constant birth, rebirth, and re-death. And that was that was a large part of the spiritual search. Uh, for the other main group, uh, the spiritual path was coping with this idea that someday that you're going to die. And some of the manifestations of that aren't what we would necessarily regard as particularly spiritual. They would lead to, you know, well, better do, do it now. Enjoy it now. Have it now. So uh, this led to some points of view that, well, uh, okay, I'll go out and conquer as much of the world as I can and I'll slaughter whoever gets in my way because then I'll have a great impact or I'll impose this view or teaching on many people as I can during my lifetime and that way I'll live on afterwards or I'll just enjoy as much sensual delight as I can before uh, it's all gone different ways of of approaching that some were more spiritual some were trying to find meaning in okay there's this external world and here I am in it and I only have so many years to live and then I'm obliterated. So, you know, uh, they looked for spiritual teachings that gave a meaning and purpose so they could devote their life to pursuing that meaning and purpose and so on. That was the sort that was the kind of thing that was going on in the Buddha's day, but you probably noticed it's not any different now. It's exactly the same thing. There are a lot of people who are convinced that all of it is is the material world. All that we have is this short span of life. And then we either try to find our own meaning or we try to make our mark on the world, you know. Uh, the third right will last for uh, a thousand years. That was actually a lot of the philosophy behind the third right. was based on uh, a, a kind of nihilism, philosophical nihilism uh, developed by Nietzsche. And it is one of the rational, reasonable outcomes of materialism is that, well, you make as big a mark on the world as you can while you're here. And of course, other approaches of people of a materialistic mindset are that uh, you, you just, you know, you enjoy as much of everything as you can. So you uh, do whatever is necessary, as, as much uh, uh, as much money, as much sex, as, as much uh, uh, every kind of enjoyment as you can manage to get into your life, you do that. And then, of course, we have, on the other side, we have lots of people who are convinced, for one reason or another, that this precious self of theirs uh, is going to last a long time. And so... You know, well, a lot of things do. You go out there and make lots of good karma so you get reborn in good conditions. 
or similar to that, and you can choose a, a faith that posits a kind of heaven, and then you learn what the rules are to follow to uh, be reborn in heaven so that you don't have to be reborn. Now, that's a lot like those who believe in continuous reincarnation that felt like through the spiritual search they could find a way to break, break the cycle and go to some much higher plane of existence in the state the, the wheel of, of, of reincarnation. And we see that reflected in many spiritual uh, beliefs that people subscribe to today. But you see, the thing that is common to all of these is that the underlying problem is what's going to happen to this self and what we do about it, depending on what conclusion that we come to, what we're persuaded of as to what happens to this self, what are we going to do about it? Then along comes Siddhartha Gautama, does a lot of meditation, has the experience of seeing beyond the illusion, seeing things as they really are, and coming out of it. And uh, telling us that, well, the answer is simply, simply this. There is no self, never was, never will be. There's nothing to lose, there's nothing to worry about. The problem is, how do you understand that in, in a way that makes you have any interest in, in uh, pursuing that? I mean, the first reaction might be, well, uh, I'd better uh, go get baptized really quickly or uh, take up some other uh, seemingly more promising uh, spiritual path than one that's just going to lead me to the conclusion that uh, I've never existed. But now this, the thing with this, though, is that we can't, you can't accept that. You can't understand that. And the only reason that you might have the reaction that, oh, well, this is, this is not for me, is that you can't understand that. That you are so totally, invisibly, subtly, irretrievably attached to the idea that you do exist that the idea of somebody telling you that you don't is equivalent to, have, to having something you already have taken away from you or having something annihilated. So that's what makes it really difficult. That's what makes it really difficult. And in much of the world, in the wisdom of the Buddhist teaching, you don't go out announcing to everybody that this is what Buddhism is all about. People are brought into it much more gently. You know, let's put all the focus on getting over suffering. And we'll get to this dirty little secret of how you do it later on. And uh, let's, let's bring people to an understanding of the nature of karma and the benefits of virtue so that uh, they can make themselves and their lives better and actually in some small way make the world a better place. But when the Buddha was serious 
about bringing somebody to the highest state of enlightenment. The second teaching he presented was the one that said, look, you guys are going to have to realize that you've been holding on to something all this time that's a figment of your imagination. We go back to the Four Noble Truths. Life is full of suffering. The suffering is caused by craving. If you can get rid of the craving, there is no more suffering. And the point is, you're not going to be able to get rid of the craving as long as you're attached to this belief in yourself, this belief in a separate, enduring self. Because that is the root of your craving. When you divide the universe into me and not me, there is immediately a conflict. There is inevitably a conflict. Many, many different conflicts that come up in terms of uh, if things go one way, it's to my benefit. If they go the other way, I lose. And so you're, you're, as long as you have a self, you're in conflict with everything else. And however big or small that boundary is that separates you from everything else, uh, you're going to have conflict at that boundary. And that's why there's craving. That's why there's desire and aversion. Why do we desire things? Well, it's because, you know, I want to be happy. I, I want pleasure. I want. I, I, I want, want, want. You know, or when it comes to pain, suffering, and happiness, loss, I don't want. And that's, you know, and I have aversion to anyone or anything or any circumstance that I see that threatens to present me with pain or loss or happiness. So, you are not going to be able to free yourself from craving, from desire and aversion until you cut the root. And so that's why the, that's why the Buddha said, this can be hard for folks to understand. And it's also why when he set out to teach it that he had to address this right away. Now actually he addressed it, he began to address it in his first teaching uh, where he was discussing the, the Four Noble Truths. Let me see if I can quickly find that and There is this noble truth of suffering. And let me just remind you that the word that's translated here as suffering means dissatisfactoriness. And of course, suffering is extreme dissatisfactoriness, but it encompasses the much more subtle and mild forms of dissatisfaction as well. This is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Death is suffering. Those are all physical things. Sorrow, lamentation, grief, and despair are suffering. Association with the loathed is suffering. Disassociation from the loved is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. Now, here's the key thing. In short, the five the clinging to the five aggregates of suffering. So, what he proceeded to do in his next teaching is to expand on that. 
this five aggregates. And that's, that's what uh, I'm, I'm going to be mainly explaining to you. But the idea of these five aggregates is that they completely encompass anything and everything that you might identify with yourself as an individual. That they include everything that you are. What's important about that is uh, is that in order to understand the truth of not-self, first of all, you have to be satisfied that there isn't some part of you that is not included in those five. And until you're convinced of that, you know, you'll be saying, oh, well, there's my body and there's my mind and my whatever, but then there's my immortal soul. And you will cling to the idea of something that is outside of those five ideas. When you come to accept through careful analysis and meditation and observation that, in fact, this is an adequate description, that it does completely encompass all that you are, then you look at it and say, okay, is this a self in the sense that I'm clinging and attached to it? And what you find is that all of these things, all of what makes up these five aggregates is it's temporary, impermanent. Not only is it impermanent, it's constantly changing, moment by moment. So the least thing that there is in these five aggregates is something that you could point to as a uh, as a consistent self. It's just constantly in a state of flux. That there is no self in any of this. And then the other thing is that you recognize that the, all of these aggregates, any part of them individually or the totality of them is, the nature of it is the same dissatisfactoriness. That if we cling to it, if we cling to it, we're going to experience pain, loss, and suffering. That, and so, so this teaching of the five aggregates is a tool to help us begin that process of accepting the idea that, well, maybe, maybe perhaps this is true. That what I'm clinging to and what I hold to is uh, not, in fact, real. And so you have to you have to satisfy yourself that this is indeed true. So what are these five aggregates? They are the first one is uh, the word in Pali is rupa, and it's usually translated as form, and usually taken to refer to that which is material or physical. The other four are all mental in nature. And of the other four, there is feelings, which doesn't mean sensations, and it doesn't mean emotions. Uh, Vedana or Vedana is the Pali word for it. And what it means, it's very specifically designed as the feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. 
And actually, in order to analyze and understand this properly, we have to recognize that there are uh, really five wavelengths, not three. There is pleasant feeling that arises in the body, and then there is pleasant feeling that is mental in nature. And then there is unpleasant feeling that arises in the body, what we commonly call pain. And then there is... uh, Wait a minute. That's right. Unpleasant mental. I think I... Okay, there's pleasant and unpleasant that is physical. Okay, there's pain and pleasure in the body. Then there is mental pleasure and mental suffering. Okay. So, pain comes in two varieties, mental and physical, and, and pleasure comes in two varieties, mental and physical. And then there are experiences uh, that are neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And so, uh, there's really five ways. The next thing that there is are the mental formations. This is emotions, thoughts, ideas, memories. And it's also motivations, intentions. Um, this, we, could ex- we could take these and expand them and say that when we say thoughts and ideas, uh, that will encompass all of those other things that you might say, well, what about this, what about that? So thoughts and ideas, emotions, memories, and predispositions to action, motivation, intentions. These are the mental formations. Then, so that's the second of the mental uh, aggregates, the third of the five. Then there is consciousness. And, well, that's a deep subject, so we'll, we'll gloss over consciousness for the moment. Then lying sort of in the middle of these five is perception. When some event affects the body, the physical, the rupa, and a sensation arises, then, based on the mental formations, based on your stored previous experiences, you have a perception. Every, every perception you have is being conscious and an object of consciousness and the object of consciousness is understood, interpreted, perceived based on the me- your accumulated mental formations. And then, of course, when that happens, there will arise a feeling of either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Okay, so these, these are the five aggregates. Any questions about that? Can you remember that? I'd really like you to remember that and think about this to see if you think it's true, that that does include everything. But that will be somewhat difficult to do without a more complete explanation uh, of them, and particularly the rupa one, the physical one, the material one. Because in the simplest sense, we say, okay, well, that must, if, if these are the things that encompass my body, then that must or encompass me as an individual, that must mean group is my body, right? 
That's physical. Heat, cold, pressure, touch, uh, burning, cutting, uh, pain of different sorts, pleasure, sensual pleasure. These are all things that the body experiences through sense organs, right? And, of course, all of the sense organs uh, are activated by other physical things, other material things that interact with the body. So in one sense, we could say, well, I guess Rupa is the whole material universe. And in a sense it is. But if we look at this, and and we always, in, 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 in Buddhism, we always come back to trying to see exactly what is as much as possible uh, removing all of the assumptions and presumptions and, and the obscurations of jumping to conclusions about things. And just try to see what really is. Now what really is are sensations. Just the sensations themselves. That. Right? You only think you have a body because you have a sensation of seeing it, feeling it, smelling it, you know, whatever. That's why you think you have a body. In other words, there's been a lot of sensations take place and your mind has generated mental formations, ideas, concepts, thoughts, to explain those sensations. That's what your body is. It's a perception. You see, feel, or otherwise experience your body and your mind interprets it based on mental formations and you have the perception of a body. Are you answering my question? No. And likewise, all of those material objects out there that, you know, that interact with our body, stimulate our sense organs, give rise to the sensations, well, those are also all fabrications of our mind to explain those very sensations. So when we talk about rupa, we're really talking about the those things that are the objects of our consciousness. And sensations. We become conscious of sensations and then we immediately experience perceptions. And, of course, in the beginning of your life, your sensations didn't have this framework to fall into that they do now. You didn't have this massive mental formations already in place to explain all these sensations. So that had to be developed. And that's the way the process works. Whenever consciousness uh, establishes contact with sensations, whenever sensations are an object of consciousness, then the mind in turn incorporates that into the massive mental formations that are there. So the process that began when you were a child hasn't stopped. Every single experience you have contributes to the mental formations that make you up. And so that's what you are. You are this aggregate 
if we take you at this particular point in time and we accept the apparent reality that you've been around for X number of years since, since you were born and that you started experiencing sensations probably sometime in the womb before you were born and that your mind started assembling a world out of those sensations and that's been going on all the way up to the present then you have an idea of what you are and the world you live in created out of sensations. So we start with the with the aggregate uh, with the rupa aggregate of these sensations. And as soon as we had a few mental formations, then we could start having some perceptions. And uh, of course, some of those sensations included the vedna of uh, pain of physical origin or pleasure of physical origin. So we could make, as part of our mental formations, we could make associations. And so now we start to have uh, certain uh, sensations that otherwise would not be either painful or pleasant will give rise to painful or pleasant mental sensations. You see somebody that you really like, uh, you know, the association makes you feel good. Or you see something that has been a cause of pain for you in the past, and we, you have a mental response of, of uh, unhappiness or suffering. So you are sensations, you are your mental formations, you are this constant flux of pleasure and pain interspersed with some neutral feeling. But one experience after another, pleasure, pain, neutral, pleasure, pleasure, pain, pain, and so on. Some of that pleasure is physical and some is mental. Some of that pain is physical and some is mental. Your life is this stream of perceptions, but what is the nature of those perceptions? What you perceive is what your mind, what you, what you mental formations allow you to perceive. It's a perception that arises within your mind in response to the sensation. And of course, what makes any event when this occurs real is the consciousness aspect. So you are the aggregate of X number of years of sensations, feelings, a continuously modified mass of mental formations, and the perceptions that have formed those mental formations and have in turn been formed by them. So mental formations and perceptions are constantly determining the nature of each other. And then there's this consciousness of the whole thing. So all the counts are the events that you are conscious of. That's what you are. Yes. Good. Yeah. Let's challenge this. Not necessarily challenging you anymore, but but what the curious about what it is then that, for instance, when one is in meditation, in meditation, where you there arises, shall I call it, perception. about something you've never read about, you've never heard, it, 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 it 
Okay, uh, to answer that, let's just back up a little bit. What the what you have, the perception you have, a perception, any perception, is an object of consciousness. And there's two kinds of objects of consciousness. There are those that arise in one or another of the five senses, and there are those that are mental in nature. And so what you're talking about is a mental object of consciousness, okay? So, now, this, in meditation, having a perceptual experience of something completely novel uh, is to have a consciousness of a mental object. And so, Let's just recognize it. So it's not really different than anything else. But what we didn't really go into is that there really aren't five senses, there's six senses. And so we have the five sense object kinds of sense objects, and then we also have uh, mental objects. And so this is a mental object. Now, the question, where did that mental object come from, is what you're asking, right? Yes, perhaps it is. Yeah. Okay, and we could ask the same thing about, well, where do any of these physical senses, where do any of these other sense objects come from? And we have to look at that, and we have to ask that, and we have to discover what the answers are. So that's really what your question is just, and and this is good. What you have to to come to, to... be able to acquire the potential understanding that this system, this description of five aggregates, uh, opens up to you. You have to ask those questions. You have to ask, what about this? And what about that? And what about the other thing? Uh, And the other thing that is necessary is that it doesn't, Every question doesn't have the answer, oh, well, that's just another example of this. What the questions will do, some of the questions inevitably have to take you to deeper levels of understanding. And this is all very important. You know, in the search for a self-nature in these five aggregates, we are going to have to ask those questions, well, where do these sensations come from? And I'll just quickly give you some some of the answers that come up as you pursue it. Uh, You can look at it and say, well, sensations, sensations. Well, there might be some stuff out there that uh, 
you know, more or less corresponds to my mental representation of it, interacting with sense organs that are more or less like my mental representation of what I think they are. And so there, even though all I know is my mental, as my perceptions based on my mental formations, there isn't out there, out there that's accounting for these sensations. So that's one kind of answer that you could come up with and contemplate. But then you might say to yourself, but sometimes when I'm asleep, I experience perceptions and sensations that those perceptions are based on that don't bear the same kind of potential relationship to an out there. So, well, for that matter, maybe all of my sensations just come from my mind in the same way the dream sensations do. So, these are these. This is the next layer of of asking these questions and seeing where it takes you to. Now, when it comes to the mental objects, many profound insights, seeing things in a totally different way than you've ever seen them before, are very similar to the way we solve ordinary problems and come to have mundane insights. That our mind was able to take the information it already had. And this is what our minds do. Uh, as a matter of fact, we could say this is what our, the essence of our intelligence is that our minds take information that means one thing and rearrange it and, and discover new information and achieve new understanding. So our minds do this all the time. And some of the insights that we have are exactly that. We take experience that we've had, ordinary experience and ordinary understanding, but organize it in a new way and it brings us to a level of insight and understanding that goes beyond the ordinary and beyond the mundane. And if this weren't possible, we could never we could never penetrate. We'd be hopelessly trapped in this mental world that our mind creates and we could never see beyond it. But the mind can actually, you know, this is a kind of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, but your mind can take what it already knows and discover truths that go beyond what it already knows. Now that's, that's one part of it. Now let me just throw you into a whole, you know, several quantum jumps of examination further than this. <laughs> The true nature of reality is something that is completely different than the conceptual world the mind creates. And in that ultimate nature, there is no separate self. And, boy, this is a big jump I'm making, but actually we could fill in every step along the way. That ultimate nature is also identical with what we might call the Buddha nature. What the Buddha realized and what any Buddha, a fully enlightened being, will realize when they fully realize this ultimate nature. So the mind of the Buddha is the Buddha nature. And because there is no separate self, we all already have this Buddha nature in us. And what is steering us in subtle ways 
to even search for liberation from suffering, to search for wisdom, to have experienced inklings of compassion, and to perceive in compassion a higher value. All of these things are our Buddha nature. It's already there. It's hugely obscure. It's the diamond encrusted with all of this other crud. Or it's the lump of gold ore where you know the gold is in there, but it's mixed in with all of this other junk that has to be separated out first. Because if you've ever seen a lump of gold ore, it does not look anything like gold. But nevertheless, the gold is in there. So some of the insight that we come to, although anything that is conceptually understood, anything that's conceptually understood is coming from that same mind that generates all conceptions and all perceptions. But there is also there are also those insights and those realizations that the only way that we can explain that is with reference to the fact that there is this Buddha nature and there is no separate self and flip it on its head and we would say, well, yes, and of course we could never become enlightened. We would never have any impulse to if it weren't for that. <laughs> oh, I was just giving you so much and I'm accused. Carrie, if you want to go first. Yeah, I was still wondering though, how come like obviously there's different experiences that one has. And the ones you're talking about are this experience that mm-hmm. happens. But I don't understand why you say that one's true and that one's not. <laughs> I can understand why you might say this one is really much more you know, there's not suffering if you're in this one. You say which? You can say there's not suffering if you're in this one, or you have compassion, you're happier, mm-hmm. and this one is miserable. I can see where you could say those two things, but I don't see why you could say this one's true and that one's false. That <laughs> to me. Okay. Well, this is this this is what you have to discover, and absolutely, I, you know, the Buddha. This is one thing that sets the Buddha's teaching apart from every other spiritual teaching I know, is he said, don't believe a word of what I say because I'm saying it. Find out for yourself. And I'll tell you the same thing. All I can do is pass along his hints to you, uh, dressed up with whatever I've learned myself, but you have to discover it for yourself. And so absolutely, yeah, what, what exists and what doesn't exist. You start with what makes sense to you. And you know, some things like uh, the, the horns of a rabbit don't exist, right? Unicorns don't exist. Uh, well, in a sense they don't exist, in another sense they do. They exist in your mind, and if you, people, many people have made statues and paintings of unicorns, and they definitely exist. So, I mean, somewhere along the line, you've got to, you know, start examining for yourself what 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 does it mean? What does real what does real mean to me? And what's important? Uh, and you don't need to become a philosopher to do this. You can just say, what 
what is there about the realness or non-realness of things or the existence or non-existence of things that is relevant and important to me in, the, in my experience and my spiritual path and what I'm trying to do. Why does it matter? That's what I'm wondering because it seems enough to say... Well, see, that's my point. enough to say one point is... That's my point. Just focus on those things where it matters. Yeah, because why does it matter to say true or not true? Isn't it just another, like, confusion? <laughs> another kind of a red herring in a certain way? Well, it can be. But if, I'm not sure what real and not real you're referring to. But since, well, the, only, since the only non-real, since the only non-real and real distinction I remember making tonight, I might have forgotten. The only one I remember making is saying that the Buddha said that this self, this permanent abiding personality that you believe you are, is a figment of your imagination, which isn't to say it's not real. But it, it, there is a sense in which it's not real, and there is another sense in which it is real. But it's not real in the sense that causes us to propel ourselves through our lives based on craving, on desire, and aversion. That's the sense in which it's not real. And that's where it's important. If you would like to, if you would like to achieve the wisdom that liberates you from suffering and that opens you to perfect compassion, then that gives you a motivation to investigate the realness versus non-realness as it applies to the self. That's the reason right there. Um, Yes, um, solipsism, as you probably know, is that solipsism is a philosophy that says, or a philosophical problem, you can say, that says nothing exists but myself and my hallucination of what's outside of me. That's right. Yes. And that's... Uh, And uh, many... uh, When Western philosophers, thinkers, you know, were first exposed to Theravada Buddhist thought, many of them thought that the Buddhist was... the Buddha was a a solipsist. Yes. And, of course, they were mistaken. And later on, when they came across... uh, a kind of Buddhism called mind only or cheetah mantra, they were sure that they that it was yeah, solipsism. Right. Yeah. Well I <laughs> yeah. At, at any rate, I this is certainly not the case, but I think it would be accurate to say that Theravada Buddhists thought certain certain things like what the, the five aggregates that we're talking about here has a solipsistic tone to it. And maybe it's for a particular reason, like to, I don't know, like Derrida's version of deconstructing the self so that, you know, you can, you can see it as it's illusory component parts and there is no self or solidified that's, soul. That's it. exactly the whole purpose of it. The, yeah. The, yeah. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a set of concepts, it's five aggregates. It's a discursive analysis of experience that says, an individual consists of five aggregates. And its own purpose is to help us to do exactly that, to deconstruct this idea of self so that we can get to that place where we might be able to see through the illusion and penetrate the illusion that is holding us back. That's its only purpose. It's not... It, in. Uh, 
the re- Western philosophers have always wanted to come up with an ultimate description, an ontological description of reality. That this is what is, and it's the way it is. And Buddhism's never really tried to do that. So if you take any of the teachings of Buddhism and you say this is an ontological description, you you immediately run into uh, into problems. Um, yeah. And you find yourself either lost in solipsism or nihilism. Right. Uh, but, you know, the fact of the matter is, I mean, as we're walking around the world, uh, perception in its mundane meaning is what keeps us from walking into walls. That's right. And middle formations are what arise if we do walk into one and bump our nose. That's for sure. It, so... There's, there is a usefulness here that could be drawn. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we've got to navigate. <laughs> and one, yeah, and that's, I'm, you know, you mentioned that, and it just reminds me, another one of the myths about spiritual paths in general, and Buddhist path in particular, is that well, we're doing this to destroy the ego, to destroy the self. No. I mean, you're always, you can't, you can't function without an ego. That's a, that's a kind of mental formation. It's a kind of mental process that's necessary. And we're not out to destroy that. We're out to gain wisdom that penetrates beyond the uh, illusion that is created by being attached to something that is a mental function. You know, and, and positing it. I mean, we're making the mistake of positing a kind of ontological reality to it, an ultimate nature that it doesn't have. And that's what we're trying to get beyond. We're not trying to just don't try to destroy your ego. To succeed on the spiritual path, you need to have a healthy ego that you're not attached to. <laughs> but you're not going to destroy it. And we're not trying to destroy the sense of self because, hey, you know, it's it's like all of those other mental formations. We're not trying to destroy our perception of sunsets. You know, and, and blue skies and, uh, and flowers and things like that. You know, we're just trying to see them as they really are, from from a higher, uh, pure perspective. I I would like to know um, how everything you said tonight relates to um, the theory of incarnation and karma. When there is no body and no self and no soul and no essence. It's all perception and illusion. What what is incarnating then, and how is it related to working out the karma? Maybe from different things. Okay. So, <clears throat> first of all, Buddha took the commonly accepted idea of reincarnation, and he used it. But the first thing he did is said not reincarnation, rebirth. And then he said, what is reborn, what is reborn is karmic predispositions. Okay? And so, and now some in, in, well, probably in most of the Buddhist world, people who are relatively uneducated and don't have much depth of understanding just take it for granted that rebirth refers to reincarnation. And they believe in reincarnation. And they donate to the temple and feed the monks and, and practice generosity with other people and 
uh, trying not to kill and steal and things like this to have good karma. But that's all a fantasy. Um, but it's also a legitimate part of the path. It's a it's a skillful means. But it does not correspond to any sort of ultimate truth. The next refinement of that is rebirth. That everything that you think of as yourself, your personality, that is a mental fabrication. And when your mind with its mental formations disappears because your brain disintegrates when you die, that continuously changing uh, set of, uh, that continuously changing mental formation that corresponded to your idea of who you are ceases. That is not going to be reborn. And all Buddha said was that it would be reborn is your, uh, the karmic predispositions that you have developed in your life. Please feel free to go. Thank you for letting me take so much of your time. Oh, thank you so much. I, my, uh, I have to go take care of someone. Right. <laughs> Apropos this. I know, and I'm going to have to be here. quiet and let everybody else go home and do the things they have to do soon. Anyway. Thank you. But, thank you so much. Uh, as a person's understanding deepens, you know, and as they actually enter upon the first and subsequent stages of enlightenment, then each of these things comes to a deeper and more profound level of understanding and loses a lot of its illusory characteristic. Reincarnation is an illusory characteristic. Even rebirth, in the sense that I just described it, is a provisional teaching to help bring a person to another level of understanding. Just immediately ask yourself, if there is no such thing as a separate self, And what is, you know, what is this stuff talking about anyway? So there is a, a deeper understanding even of the meaning of rebirth. As a matter of fact, as as skillful means, rebirth quickly shifts from the idea of, of a, an infant born to a mother following the physical death of another body to the rebirth that we experience every morning when we wake up actually as as a teaching understanding and to really understand these five aggregates and to really understand another important teaching that we haven't really talked about in detail called dependent origination you recognize that the rebirth that the Buddha is talking about is happening moment by moment. It's not the it's not the physical body that rebirth is referring to. It's the moment by moment rebirth. Is that what Tinchnakan means in his in his book, No Death, No Fear, that there is no rebirth, no death, and it's just an incarnation constantly transforming? That's right. Yes. So what is the karmic thing then you said is a catch, the karmic Gets or whatever we have to, it must be attached to something. Well, we will. Uh, that's that's what you would think, and that is that's why that's why these teachings are difficult because as soon as you teach this to something, and what people do, and what 
Buddhist philosophers in the past have done, until other Buddhist philosophers have pointed out the error in their thinking, is exactly that. They thought, okay, there must be a carrier of this karma. And if there's a carrier of this karma, well, what you've done is you've just regenerated the idea of self again. Right? So there's a... and Yeah, and, and this is what, what we do. It, we keep slipping into our old way of thinking. We keep trying to fit the new perspective into our old way of thinking. And that causes us to keep trying to make up a self in a different form. And so you, you have to keep repeating this process of recognizing, well, there's no self in that either, over and over again. That is what Tishnan is referring to. And so, you know, when we talk about, if, if this were simple, like how a car works, then every statement we make would have only one level of meaning. But it's not. And so, as your insight and understanding develops, all of the same statements that helped you to get to this level of insight and understanding, now they have to be understood once again from, that, from this new perspective. I was. You can be next <laughs> if, we, if everybody else is willing to say. So please go. Well, one of the five aggregates is consciousness. Yes. And that's illusory. Uh, consciousness once again is something that needs to be understood based on our experience. You need to examine. Uh, your consciousness, and when the Buddha said the aggregate of consciousness, he said there are six kinds of consciousness, and each is distinct from the other. There, and, and this corresponds to the six senses. There is visual consciousness, and visual consciousness does not hear sounds, you know, and so on with all of the other consciousnesses. And then you need to examine in your own experience the the fact that each of these consciousnesses arises with an object of consciousness from its own specific domain, and it passes away when the object in that domain passes away. So you see that what you have is not one consciousness, and, and here we're talking about your experience of where you are now. We're not talking about anything beyond or outside of that. And what you need to do is verify for yourself that your whole life has been a stream of experiences, conscious experiences, in which any consciousness that you could identify was one of those six types, and it arose and passed away with its object. And so that's the aggregate of consciousness. Now, we run out of good words and we end up using the same words over and over again. The Pali word for this aggregate of consciousness, or, or the consciousness that makes up this aggregate, is vijnana. And the Sanskrit word is vijnana. And what vi means is, it designates is the fact that it's dualistic consciousness. It's a split consciousness. So, when there is no duality, when we've gone beyond all 
duality. All conception, all formations, and all dualities, then there is the jnana without the V, or the jnana without the V. It's non-dualistic. And that is a whole different story. But when we're talking about what you are as an individual, and we examine your experience, and we try to clearly identify everything, you know, we, everything it is that makes you up as an individual and satisfy ourselves that, indeed, it's included in that, we find that what makes you up are the, these Vijnanas. Okay. I wondered how that jived with the, um, the passage that says, all phenomena are preceded by mind, issue forth from mind, etc. Yes. That's Is that right. a different word? Uh, Mind uh, is, is that's a different word than jhana, yes. So, uh, jhana or jnana, in this sense, is referring to something that is of an ultimate nature. Okay. Uh, the mind is, and this is this is the other thing. Once you get satisfied that yourself is not your body, then you have to become satisfied that yourself is not your mind, and that's hard to do. Because I feel like I'm my mind. Don't you feel like you're your mind? Yeah, we do. So, but, uh, and we don't use any of these terms very exactly. We say mind, consciousness, awareness, things like this. Uh, But we need to think in much more precise terms. Your mind is that complex of processes that gives rise to these dualistic perceptions. And, by the way, whenever we're talking about a dualistic perception, every dualistic perception has two parts. The seer and the seen. The hearer and the heard. So, what we find is this this reflection of the way we're already experiencing things was that there was me and then there's the rest of the world. And and, And that goes right on down. We just get right on down and we still find it happening at the level of consciousness itself. There is the knower and the known. And it's that same duality. And within that duality, there is no genuine separate self. How does this relate to, to the concept or illusion of sequential time? Oh, that's... <laughs> I can understand that you'd love to talk about that. I would love to talk about that, too. We're 29 minutes over when we okay. should, I should let everybody go on. Some, so. some other topic. I think it's been a, a great discussion, and uh, I look forward to uh, all, of, all of these other questions that come out of it. And all of this is going to tie back to the meditation, because... The insights that, uh, or the understanding, meditation is about looking to see what's actually the case, what's really happening, what's really there, and uh, and so all of these concepts, like five aggregates, are just they're they're pointers at the moon to help you look in the right direction when you're doing your looking, so that you can see what needs to be seen. Okay, well, thank you very, very much. Uh, I, I enjoyed our talk. I look forward to the next one. I hope you have a 
wonderful two weeks until mm. I see you again. And next Thursday, my What's that? Next Thursday is lunch. No, I'm, during the summer I'm giving myself a, a, a little bit of free time to try to catch up on my writing. Oh, sorry, you had something oh, on. I'd also like to say we, we do meditate on uh, Sundays. Oh, yeah. Which is from Book Canyon. And if anybody's interested in going out on Sunday, uh, it starts at 10 o'clock. You're welcome to come earlier. Then we have a potluck lunch at 1 o'clock. Um, if somebody you know, in your family wants to come and not meditate, there's beautiful hiking or they can you know, sit and wait for some minutes. Um, so if, if there's anybody interested in carpooling um, to come to Stronghold on Sunday, please just chat with me briefly. Yes, that's right. Thank you very much. Every Sunday at 10 o'clock we answer questions, have some Dharma talk, and then we meditate. And uh, you don't have to stay for the entire time, but uh, it would be nice if you did. That's in Cochise Stronghold Canyon. There's wonderful hiking there. You know, you can bring partners or family members, and if they're not interested in meditating, they can, you know, enjoy the wonderful outdoors. And so. Is it cooler there right now? It's, it's always at least 10 degrees cooler there than in Tucson, so I think you're expecting something like 112 on Sunday here. <laughs> and and ch- chances are we won't be over 100, but anyway. 